0: Our second scripture reading today comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping to verse 6 and continuing through verse 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalim, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him. 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Between Austria and Italy... In the Alps, there is a section called the Semarine. It is an impossibly steep and incredibly high section of the mountains. And in 1842, an engineer named Karl Ritter von Hage, he began imagining that a railway might one day span that remarkable distance in order to connect Vienna and Venice directly. It took 14 tunnels 16 viaducts, 20,000 workers, and 12 years before the railway was complete. And at that time, it was five times steeper than any other railway in existence. It was an incredible dream, and it was an even more incredible accomplishment, so much so that in 1998, the Semarine Railway was named a World Heritage Site, It was recognized for the advanced technology utilized in its creation and for its ability to make this vastly beautiful but previously unaccessible area available to humanity. It created a new cultural landscape, and for all of these reasons and more, it is considered a marvel of the modern world. But perhaps the most marvelous piece of the story is that at the time Von Hege conceived of this idea, and even at the time when excavation had begun and construction of the tracks had started to be laid down, there was no train in existence that could make the trip. In other words, one of the most ambitious projects in railway history was undertaken with no assurance that someday, eventually, a train would come along that could utilize it. Now, of course, there's no way to know this for fact. But I do like to imagine that if you traced Von Haga's family tree all the way back, branch by branch, maybe even forest by forest, you would eventually find the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet, but he was a reluctant one. And I can't blame him for that. Real prophets are never particularly popular. He didn't go out seeking this job. The job came to him. He tried to exchange it for one that he thought he would like better, but God was not interested in negotiating. So this left Jeremiah with no choice but to reach for an excuse. I'm just a kid, he says to God. I am too young to do what you ask of me. And God says right back, don't you ever... Say that to me again. I imagine that most of us would have been just as reluctant. Jeremiah lived and prophesied during the worst time in Israel's biblical history. A foreign enemy nation, Babylon was its name, Nebuchadnezzar was its king. A foreign enemy came through with its army and burned down the temple. They destroyed the holy house of God. They left Jerusalem in ruins and they deported the people. They took them away from their homes and forced them into exile. And Jeremiah is the one tasked with interpreting all that has happened to them. He does this for the next 26 solid chapters of this book. And he uses brutal language to do it. It is rough going. This is not a feel-good book because it is not written during a feel-good time. In response to everything that Jeremiah is saying, there are others who rush in with platitudes and cliches. They are tired of Jeremiah's gloom and doom, so they fall all over themselves, reassuring everybody that everything is going to be just fine, thank you very much. Just give it a day or two. The prophet Hananiah was one of those We might do well to call him a false prophet. He shows up a few chapters before our reading this day, and he says to the people who are hurting and homesick, Don't worry. The bad days are almost behind you. The Lord will bring you back within two years, he promises. So chin up. But Jeremiah is the one that God appointed, and he will have none of it. No, he says, it will not be like that at all. That's a word we don't necessarily expect to hear from the Bible very often. No, the good news you want is not coming. Hananiah is a liar. Now, it may seem wrong to squash good news like Jeremiah does, but I am grateful for Jeremiah's holy no. Because there are times when it is the ugly and horrible truth. There are times when life falls apart, and there are times when everything really is worse than you imagined it might be. I suspect you are familiar with this in some capacity. For me, it was a handful of years ago. It was in the middle of my time at my last church. I woke up sick one day, which in and of itself is not a big deal. The problem was, as more and more time passed, I couldn't seem to shake it and the doctors couldn't figure it out. Finally, they sat me down for an awkward conversation. They said, We think that you have cancer. Everything we can do and see points in that direction. But we can't find it. So I'm going to skip to the end of that particular story, and I'm going to skip over all of the medical jargon, And tell you that I did not have cancer, but it took five months for them to figure that out. And in the middle of it all, honestly, the very last thing I wanted to hear someone say to me was that surely everything was going to be just fine. Because sometimes it isn't. Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet, because he was a realistic prophet. Jeremiah knew what we know, that the ground shakes, marriages end, cancer shows up, children get sick, wars rage, violence erupts, corruption runs rampant, mental illness remains, finances collapse, everything can change. And that is what exile looks like when you are thrust into the middle of an unfamiliar, uncomfortable place. It's when the darkness feels so deep. And it's when you would give anything for just a little bit of peace or something that would remind you of the place or time you call home. So it's in the midst of that kind of experience that words like, Don't worry, it's all going to be fine. It's in the middle of those moments that that kind of response rings rather hollow. And so Jeremiah offers a response of his own. He speaks another brutally honest word. He tells the exiles, here is the truth. It's going to be a while. We are in this for the long haul, so we better settle in. Really, Jeremiah says, I couldn't be more serious. Here's what you need to do. You need to get used to this place. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat from them. Find someone you love. Start a family. Look out for those around you in the midst of this terrible exile of ours. Do everything you can to keep living. It's the only thing to do because we are going to be here for a while. And then, as if to prove his point even more, in our reading today, Jeremiah buys a field. In the midst of being exiled far from home, Jeremiah buys property. This is the word of the Lord, he says, and he puts the deed of purchase in a jar so that it will last a long time. And he says, this is the word of the Lord. Houses and fields and vineyards will appear again in this land. But houses and fields, families and vineyards and gardens, each one of those is a long-term commitment. Gardeners are some of the most hopeful people I know. I should point out here that I am not a particularly good gardener. You plant a seed in the dirt and you care for it day after day after day, And this takes a while, and you don't see evidence that anything is happening. Gardening is not for people who like instant gratification. Gardening is for people like Jeremiah. And if I had to guess, I would bet that engineer, Von Haga, had a garden somewhere, too. Gardening is for people like my friend Barbara. Barbara was a member at the first church I served. She had had cancer for longer than I had known her. And whenever I went to visit her, if it wasn't the middle of winter, she would ask me to wheel her out to her flower garden. One fall, she worked herself nearly exhausted every day planting bulbs. And we both knew that she was ending the near, she was nearing the end of her life. One day I asked her, Barbara, I said, what is it like to spend all your energy planting these bulbs when it's possible you won't get to see them bloom? She patted my hand with the wisdom of someone who knows more than their pastor. And she said, honey, you are absolutely right. She said, I will not see these bulbs blossom. But someone else is going to move into this apartment. And they are going to love their new garden. Build and plant, Jeremiah says, houses and fields and vineyards. It was a while back now. That Stephen Colbert spoke to a graduating class of seniors from Knox College. With a lifetime's worth of wisdom to disperse in 15 minutes or less, he chose these words. He said, say yes as often as you can. He says, when I was starting out in Chicago doing improv theater with Second City, there was really only one rule that I was taught— that rule is yes and. In this case, he said yes and is a verb. Yes anding means that when you go on stage to improvise a scene without a script, you have no idea what's about to happen and you are probably figuring it out with someone you've never met before. So he said, to build a scene, you have to accept. To build anything on stage, you have to accept whatever the other improviser initiates. They say that you are both doctors, you are now a doctor. And then you add to that. So you're doctors and you're trapped in an ice cave. That's the and part, and hopefully they will yes and you right back. Colbert looked out at the graduates and he said, You are about to start the greatest improvisation of all. There is no script. You have no idea what is going to happen. And it will often be with people and places you have never seen before. You are not in control. So say yes. And. If I understand it, that is Jeremiah's word to the exiles and to us. Yes, and. Now don't miss this. The most profound element of yes and, at least as I understand it, is that it doesn't take away any of the story that comes before. Yes anding our lives never erases or diminishes the painful parts. Those need to be acknowledged. It doesn't take those parts away. It simply guarantees that those painful parts will never get the last word. Yes, and let's buy a field. Yes, and let's plant a garden. Because if gardeners are some of the most hopeful people I know, gardens are some of the most hopeful places. Surely Jeremiah would have remembered another garden. It's at the very beginning of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, when God shows us God's most remarkable and persistent skill, creation. It is in the Garden of Eden that life as we know it comes into being. It is there that God forms us out of the dust and breathes air into our lungs— It is in the garden that God forms every animal of the field and every bird of the sky. It is in that garden that God blesses all of creation. And while this one wouldn't have been Jeremiah's story to tell, it is ours. How there was another garden in which life emerged again. It was in the garden that hope sparked in the face of death on Easter morning. It was in the garden that resurrection became real. It was in the garden that the resurrected Christ is first mistaken to be, naturally, the gardener himself. It is in the garden that life comes to us. The prophets, all of the real prophets, from Jeremiah to Jesus, they point out that life is one giant composite of beauty and brokenness, joy and despair, darkness and light, exile and homecoming, death and resurrection, and all of it is stitched together. If we pretend otherwise, We are deceiving ourselves and we are deceiving everyone around us. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is to say there is exile everywhere, exile exists within the grace and mercy of God. The other way is to say that exile exists within the grace and mercy of God. That no matter how long the exile or how painful its circumstances, the grace and mercy of God will always encompass it and outlast it. Those are the two ways to look at it. But the truth is, you don't have to choose between them. Sometimes life requires us to do little more than embrace the tension. But in those moments, I promise you that is exactly where God will find you. In the strange and complex, bewildering and blessed mess of living. And that realization... And the permission it affords us, well, that may be the greatest gift and the greatest harvest that Jeremiah and his field can offer us. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.